All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Note to Self. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and we are in the midst of our special week-long series, No Filter. We are doing this in collaboration with New York Magazine's The Cut, diving deep into how women portray themselves, ourselves, online, how we own it in this post-Me Too world. Every day this week, I have been talking to a brilliant, badass woman, YouTube star Lele Pons, transparent actor Trace Lissette, the painter Amy Sherald, and of course, writers from The Cut, too, like contributor... Anne Friedman. And we are so psyched you are here for day four of our series, No Filter. Uh, a thrill, a true thrill. <laughs> Yay. Okay, so for the very few people listening who aren't familiar with your work, how would you describe what you do? Yeah, I write about gender, politics, and culture. So, you know, super narrow scope um, (laughs) with both opinions and reporting. I should also add she's the co-host of Call Your Girlfriend, a great podcast that if you want to get more lady talk, no matter what gender you are, you should definitely listen to it. So day four here is Christiane Amanpour. She just turned 60. She is kind of the epitome of a personal brand in the classic sense, you know, like her show is called Amanpour, right? She has built her journalism career up on her personality, essentially, which I have to say is why we wanted to talk to you on this day, because that is something that you are doing. Um, But may I ask how old you are? I'm 36. Okay, so you're 36. So it's a different era of doing that, right? It is, although cultivating a reputation or wanting to become known for doing something professionally in a particular way is pretty timeless. I mean, I think social media has made it feel maybe a little bit different. And I think that the ability to follow individuals as opposed to just subscribe to a publication where that individual is published, for example, or watch a show where that individual contributes has changed things. But yeah, the fundamental idea of your name and reputation are very important to doing journalistic work, I think has been true for a long time and will remain true for a long time. And as a journalist myself, I would say that we are probably the first group of people who were encouraged to create a personal brand when social media sort of took off. Yes and no. I guess I struggle a little bit with the phrase personal brand because I think it's used pretty <laughs> imprecisely it's often. Jerky also? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it kind of, it it smacks to me of someone who is like artfully arranging their life for Instagram and then like living a completely other way or something like that. Well, I think after some of the conversations that we've heard this week, that's entirely true for some people. 
Totally. And that's why I don't want to identify with it, right? Like I don't, I wrote an article about this where I talk to people who do personal branding, who all insist that their job is to merely help people talk about the real work that they do authentically, not help them invent an identity for the internet. But yeah, these things get conflated very, very easily. So before we listen to my conversation with Christiane, can I just ask, are you a fan? Like, so for me as a journalist, I was TV producer in the late 90s. I mean, I I used to see her in hotspots all over the world, and she's just this, like, TV news goddess to me. So I was pretty psyched about this conversation. But what about you? I mean, I almost fell off my ergonomic desk chair when I saw <laughs> that we were going to be on the same episode. And I have to say, she is an anchor in the sense of not just holding down a show or something, but like truly anchored in values, like mm. a really calming, comforting presence, even when she's delivering really, really difficult news. She embodies a kind of professionalism, reliability, and, you know, warmth at the same time. Mm. I think she she is just incredible. Okay. And maybe even more incredible than you thought. Let's let's listen to the interview. So I know that you are a very busy woman, so I'm going to get straight to it if that's okay. Fine. So I got to say, you're my hero. When I got into news in the late 90s, that was when you were with the green jacket reporting from Bosnia nonstop. Eventually, I went over to the Balkans myself and just someone who I really looked to as a model of um, badassery, I think is the technical <laughs> term. No, badassism. Badassism, <laughs> precisely. And I hate to make it go back to looks, but the way that you presented yourself was always elegant without a fuss. And I wonder, has that changed now that you host a show? Look, when I first wanted to get into television journalism, the fact that I had a British accent, the fact that I didn't look like the average woman on TV and local news, the fact that I had dark hair instead of blonde hair, that I had dark eyes instead of blue eyes, that was always something that I had to deal with. And luckily there was a CNN that embraced all these different looks and voices and types. I would never have made it if I had to follow the normal path here in the United States of going from a small station to a medium station to hopefully a national station. Now it's very different. They're much more open to different looks and ethnicities. And now, you know, kind of the work counts more than the looks. So when I went abroad to be a foreign correspondent, I had never really been one of those people who wore a lot of makeup or did my hair every day. In fact, I don't even to this day. But I have endurable looks and hair that allowed me to get away with being in war zones and still you look do. fairly it's decent. True. Yeah, it's good hair. Yeah. I got dark eyelashes. I don't have to put ma mm. a mascara on when I'm in the middle of a war zone. So all these things were actually very useful. It wasn't that I thought it out. It was just the way I am. I needed a uniform, I say in, in quotes, to be able to go to work with so that I wasn't thinking all the time under fire, trying to go into the worst, most disastrous extreme places in the world of what I was going to wear that day. <laughs> so I come up with jeans or khakis, perfectly good shoes that were durable and this sort of safari jacket, certainly in the good weather. And in the bad weather, I would wear a parka. Occasionally, it had a fake fur collar, and that became <laughs> my thing. <laughs> but it wasn't intended. It was just uh, really practical. 
And the same is what I'm like now on my show. I kind of have a uniform. I wear white shirts, jackets. Sometimes I wear something a little less formal or structured. I don't wear flamboyant stuff. And I just do a lot more makeup. Actually, it's done to me. And somebody does my hair, thank God, because I can't do it myself. And so I look quite nice. You I quite do like look it. quite nice. I, I leave say. the set and I, I can go out and somebody's made up my hair and, you know, done my face and I look okay. I'm luckily, very, very luckily, I don't know why, but my bosses have never dared talk to me about my looks. Because you're scary <laughs> and attractive. Because like I'm scary and attractive. It, That's in funny. any case, though, what I wanted to see, so I have to admit that I kind of stalked you over the weekend on social media. Yeah. Because for so many women on television, the idea is that you use social media to sort of show your personal side, feel like you can see into that person's world. But your social media accounts it looks like your staff basically posts for you. I didn't see anything particularly personal on there, and you remained as mysterious as you are somewhat on screen. So here's the thing. I have a thing about social media. There are personal things that I post, mostly about what's going on in the world. Sometimes about my son, sometimes about my dad. When he turned 100, I was joyously tweeting and posting all of that. But... I view my role as CNN's chief international correspondent, host of the Amanpour show on CNN International and now on PBS. And I have taken a self-preservation stance towards social media. I think that it's helpful for me to post things that, you know, people come to know me for, rely on me for, I hope a little bit, depend on me for which is facts, which is experience and knowledge of some of the biggest issues that are happening around our world at this time. That's what I feel my job is and my value added because I've been people's eyes and ears. I've gone out for all my career to the places where they cannot or will not go in order to bring back the firsthand information, the empirical facts of what's going on in the rest of the world. And I feel that if you start combining personal opinion and all that kind of stuff with these facts, although sometimes I do because it's obvious, whether it's standing up for women's rights, whatever it might be. I do feel, though, that I don't want to be the story or I don't want to be the person who gets a flood of weird trolling and I don't know what else. It's not my thing. And I feel that I've remained psychically, psychologically, mentally, spiritually, and physically healthy by not really engaging on that level on social media. I hope I engage enough that people know who I am and where I come from, but I don't feel that I need to, you know, let it all hang out and my each thought and my every stray random opinion here and there. I think that would complicate what I have worked very, very hard to achieve and to cultivate, and that is to be a professional journalist of integrity, of truth, and of facts, and somebody who people can rely on to tell them what's happening rather than how they should think. Do you think that not engaging in that way on social media also, in a way, protects you from burning out? Yes, I do. I think that's a very, very good observation because I think so many of my friends and colleagues are just literally bombarded. And from the minute they wake up to the minute they go to bed, they're doing the old thumbs and fingers. And it's not just a physical thing. It's also a mental thing because it's just so much more 
input than we've ever had to experience before. And I've actually been quite careful with my son, who's, well, I guess he's on Facebook and stuff like that, but not Twitter and things like that. I've been very careful to explain him the great opportunities and the way the world opens up to you if you're on social media, but also the pitfalls and the challenges and the dangers. We have to be living in the real world and use the incredible advances of technology to our benefit and not be used by them and not be hostage to them. And so that's how I've tried to do it. Can, Can I ask, how old is your son now? He will be 18 in two weeks. Wow. And Christian, how old are you, may I ask? Yes. Uh, do I want to tell you? I am what I, what I, what can I tell you? The only way to get out of this, I'm 60, but it's sexy 60s. Oh, I'm with you. Totally. Yeah. Sexy 60. You're not 60. No, no, no. I'm not 60, but like wherever she you says, go, Christian, I want to go there too. So there we go. Well, I do think that age is a state of mind and I uh, embrace every turning point in my life. And it's never been either a hindrance or a help or whatever. It's just you get more and more experience. And I look at people like Gloria Steinem and Jane Fonda and any number of people who you can imagine who are older than myself even and are living life to the full and have a whole new creative explosion. And I think that's fantastic, you know. But Christian, you don't see a lot of older women on TV, especially, yes, do. do you? There was Barbara Walters, there was Diane Sawyer, there's Leslie Stoll, there's Christiane Amanpour. There are many, many older women on television. And it's, it's okay. It's really okay. And everybody should understand that. Yes, they should understand that. Okay, when we return, why Christiane decided to go back to some of the war zones she covered in the past, but to ask the women there very different questions, like about their sex lives and stuff. So stand by. We're back. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and this is No Filter, a series from Note to Self with our partners at New York Magazine's The Cut. And I'm talking to Christiane Amanpour, a woman perhaps best known for her reporting from war zones around the world. And recently, she's been taking on a, a different kind of battleground. Your new series that you're doing, you talk about sex and love. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Well, it's slightly counterintuitive. It is certainly me outside of my comfort zone because I have spent my whole career reporting on the extreme conditions of life, whether it's about war or disaster, disease, whether it's about famine, whether it's about religious or ethnic conflicts. I've covered those for the last 30 odd years that I've been in the field. I I came to this sex and love around the world as a function of that extreme part of what I've been covering, because I wanted to know what makes many of these people who are caught up in these really terrible situations, what keeps them human? How do they hang on to their humanity when they're undergoing such terrible situations? They're trying to make sure their children have food, make sure their kids are educated, make sure no violence comes to their kids or to themselves. How do they, on top of all that, keep relationships going. And that led me to, well, how do they have sex? Just the very basic functions in these flimsy tents, for instance, if you're a refugee somewhere, 
or in these, you know, very, very thin metal containers where tens of thousands of people are jammed cheek by jowl and the world sits back and says, oh, well, it's great, at least we've saved them. And I'm trying to think, well, yeah, but they're also people with urges, with needs. And that led me to a much wider examination of this and mostly through the perspective and the prism of women and young girls. You know, we haven't seen this on television before. Usually on television when sex is discussed or covered, it's pornography or it's about pornography. It's about human trafficking, forced marriages, all the other terrible things that befall women all over the world. And uncovering the stories of young girls and women all around the world, I found people to be so eager to talk. And importantly, as we say in today's, you know, psychobabble, agents of their own future. These are people who want to grab this part of the world for themselves, the happiness factor, the fulfillment factor, the satisfaction factor. When you are speaking to these girls and young women about very sensitive topics, I wonder how much does it matter that you look, and forgive me if I would describe myself this way as well, ethnically ambiguous. Do you find that (laughs) people relate to you because they can kind of project on you whatever they need you to be to feel comfortable talking to you? ethnically ambiguous. I like that. I have never approached the world as a white woman. You know, I've grown up in a completely diverse family, in a completely diverse set of communities, and I have never thought of myself as white. I remember when I was a young, young girl, I was told by a friend of mine who'd visited South Africa, and we're talking about South Africa, you know, under apartheid, that if as an Iranian woman, I went to South Africa, I would be directed to the coloreds line. And I actually feel that it has given me subconsciously, because I never really latched onto that consciously, I don't identify myself one way or another, and I think that that has helped me understand and relate to people all over the world. I'm not one religion or one ethnicity or one nationality. I'm a mix, and that has helped me a lot in seeing, hearing, um, enjoying the story of the other. I want to ask, like, can you just at this point just show up in the studio? I read that you said that you feel like you can never phone it people, in. People can see right through you, I think. And I'm proud of my work. I take pride in perfecting what I do. I don't ever want to phone it in. And I re- Honestly, for somebody like me, if I found myself just phoning it in, I would say, oh, signal, change, move. I guess I see so many men who seem to not over-prepare, which I worry that I sometimes do, that I feel the need to put in hours and hours to make sure that I feel comfortable and get it right in an interview, whereas they just seem to show up, and I'm not sure that what they do is worse than what I do. Look, I don't know what they do, they in quotes, but I know that what I do and what many women do is really prepare and make sure that, you know, as Tina Brown once said, Our fate has been to be gold medalists for silver medal jobs. In other words, we do have to work over the bar because of the historic and everyday sexism and misogyny that's existed. I hope that the Me Too movement will be the game-changing moment for women to never again feel that they have to accept a stray hand without consent on their knee or any kind of sexual abuse, harassment, and the like, and that they can stand up now and say, well, remember me too, remember, time's up. On the other side, it's really time for more and more women to be in the executive suite, to be, Mm. you know, 
running the show. And I think that that is something that will make us feel more comfortable rather than we're always thinking that we have to compete with men and do better than men. And all the women who are doing these jobs, in my view, are doing very, very well. And that's because we've put so much care into it and so much commitment and so much passion. And um, we've had to fight doubly hard, sometimes to get half the reward and half the position. Uh, But we're still fighting doubly hard. I wonder if it also has to do with changing concepts of masculinity. You brought up your son. Do you talk about this with him? I, I do, actually. But I think there is and there should be a changing lens and a view of masculinity. And the point of it is that masculinity needs to be redefined to liberate our men and our boys. They cannot keep pushing this outdated, antiquated notion of masculinity down people's throats, whether it's you have to be tough, you can never shed a tear, you can't be emotional, you can't feel, you can't talk. All of those things that boys are grown up believing they can't do or they must aspire to. And instead, you know, there should be a new sort of manifesto for boys and men that it's okay to be emotional. It's okay to show feelings. It's okay not to think that life is a zero-sum game, that I have to win 100% and you have to lose 100% in order for me to come out, you know, on top. And I believe that for girls, which is now circling back to my series, Sex and Love Around the World, for girls and women to have fulfilling and equal relationships on every level, not just on who does childcare or parental care or domestic care or who does what in the workplace, but in the feelings zone as well. You know, they have to know that men are open to their feelings Mm -hmm. and also can share their feelings as well. Okay, last question. A lot of millennial women first heard of you, this is shocking to me, but because you were on the show Gilmore Girls. Right. The main character wants to be like you when she grows up. You even made a cameo on the show. What advice would you give to young women trying to navigate the internet or those who think, you know what, maybe I want to be a foreign news correspondent? Well, I would always say that being a foreign correspondent is one of the greatest jobs in the world. And I think especially it is for women. I have had nothing but positive experiences being a female war correspondent. I My real career in that regard started in the first Gulf War in 1990. And I was one of the rare ones at that time. And since then, the floodgates have opened and there are many, many women war correspondents. There are many women who you know, operate the cameras. There are many women who are producers. They're just almost sometimes more women than men. Mm. So I think it's an absolutely wonderful job. And I think women bring to these what are, after all, human conflicts and human condition, a, a willingness and an ability to talk to them about their experiences, their feelings, what's going on. And I found that women and men opened up to me as a woman when I was asking all these questions, and it gave me a lot more access. And uh, I would say about the Gilmore Girls that I was just, (laughs) uh, I loved it. I was so chuffed. I didn't know because I was living in England. I had absolutely no idea that here was this raging successful series that kept often kind of pointing to me. (laughs) And the young girl wanted to be me. And I'm like, really? And then my teammates in, in the U.S. sent me all these DVDs at that time. It was DVDs. And I watched them and I loved it because it was a smart series, one of the rare ones on TV 
about smart girls and smart mothers. And I thought that was fantastic. The dialogue was fantastic. The ambitions were great. And both the mother and the daughter were these, you know, real spitfires. Christian, thank you so much. Manoush, thank you so much. Keep up the great work. And you. Women rock. Yeah. Sex and love, man. Tune in. Christian Amanpour. <laughs> Sex and love, man. <laughs> Sex and love, man. She sounds so groovy, doesn't she, when she says that? So funny. Things I did not expect to hear from her. <laughs> Completely agree. So we're back with Anne Friedman, regular contributor to The Cut. Um, but Anne, Christian does not share much of her personal life. Were you surprised by that or were you like, yeah, no duh? It was very satisfying to me when you said to her, it seems like you are not really using your social media channels. It seems like this is, you know, to our conversation earlier, maybe is more like a brand in that sense, where like a brand doesn't have an actual voice because it's not a human. A brand is having other people communicate what it's all Mm -hmm. about. And the Mm -hmm. fact that she is obviously posting a few things herself, but does not feel like it needs to be a highly personal representation of her views and where she's at at all times. Like that's pretty brandy. (laughs) And yet when I asked her about like fashion, she totally like, she could so quickly talk about like why she chose what she wore. And, you know, like she's obviously very conscious of how she presented herself. Right. The fact that she doesn't need mascara. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I most took away from my conversation with Christiane Amanpour was her decision to protect her brain, to not get to burnout. And I I wonder if that is why she seems just as relevant and, I love the word that you used, reliable and warm, yet informative. Yeah, she seems like she always operates from a place of strength and security. Mm. She used the phrase self-preservation. I Mm. think for me, I have to remind myself that if I'm interneting for the sake of interneting, or she (laughs) called it doing the old thumbs and fingers, which I love, (laughs) if I'm in that mode, I'm not coming from a place usually of like feeling like I need to share something very important to me with the world. Usually it's much more of this mindset of like, oh, I have to keep up or I have to post a thing that I wrote and share it. Like that does not lead to a healthy relationship with you know, anything. Um, I have a little sticky note on my monitor that says you don't owe the internet anything. It's like, remember (laughs) that you don't have to be posting at all times. So I don't know. I think that really resonated with me. And I think it's good advice for all of us. You know, being our best selves is not always possible on the internet. And so you know what? You don't have to be on the internet all the time. Yeah. I think that's what it comes down to, isn't it? Questioning your intention more often than you think. Anne Friedman, thank you so much for being part of this No Filter series with The Cut and Note to Self. Thanks, Manoush. I'm such a fan of the show, and I loved your book. Oh, God. Come on anytime. (laughs) I'm a fan, too. That was Anne Friedman, Cut contributor and co-host of the podcast Call Your Girlfriend. That's a good show. You should listen to it. And listeners, we also want to hear from you. Whatever you want to say, your message to us can be messy, it can be rambling, or maybe just a pithy, insightful gem. Let it rip. No filter. That is what this series is all about. Tell us how you portray yourself online, how this series has maybe changed that portrayal, or maybe just made you think more about who your digital self is. Record a message on our website, note to selfradio.org slash share, 
or record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at note2self at wnyc.org. You can also, of course, tweet us at note2self, hashtag own it. And we are still on Facebook, despite ourselves, we are. Also, on our website, I should mention note2selfradio.org. And over at our friends, thecut.com, you can find beautiful portraits of the women that we're talking to this week. Podcasts don't always have great photos, but this time we do. Check them out. The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, Megan Cunane, and Joe Plord. Many thanks to Justine Daum, Keegan Zima, Ernie Indradat, and Anya Zhuzhik for their help producing this special series, too. Hannes Brown composed the music for No Filter. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and thank you for listening.